Hello and welcome to another episode of the Veteran Gamers Interview. And today I'm joined by Joe Humphreys from Inkle Studios. Hey there. Hey there. How are you? This is like deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So just just to say for the listeners out there, we, we've just recorded at least 20 minutes of audio. But unfortunately, due to technical reasons, it didn't record properly. So we're starting again. <laughs> So, so it should be good though. It should be good. It'll be more natural now because we know what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, yeah, I have a pre-prepared answer to every question. <laughs> I, I hope you've been writing them down so that makes it slightly easier. Um, <laughs> so, so talk, I mean, talking through sort of inkle. I mean, we'll start, we'll start differently this time, so it's not boring sure. for you. So, shall we do that? Go for it. Go for it. So let's let's do that. Let's do it in a different order to what we did it last time, and then at least it's it makes it a bit more versatile for yep. you and a bit a bit more interesting. Um, I mean, so first of all, talk me through how how did Inkle Studios come about then? So, um, so Inkle is formed out of me and. Uh, which is Joe Humphrey and uh, John uh, John Ingold, and we met at uh, Sony um, in here in Cambridge making AAA games together. Um, and when I first started at Sony, I uh, I was sitting next to John, and he, he was kind of one of the first people I met. And we quickly discovered that we shared quite a lot in common in terms of our interest in the types of games that we we would prefer to be working on uh so we we quickly got into little just just design discussions just fun just design for the fun of it um um about games like heavy rain and mass effect and especially about the dialogue systems that they use in those games that um it often feels very uh stilted and and not very interactive when you have conversations in those games. And so we, we were just kind of discussing how to improve interactive narrative. And it turned out that John was really into interactive fiction. He'd been writing for interactive fiction for the past 15 years. And after a couple of years working together where we discovered that we really liked working together and, and we, we shared similar design philosophies, uh, we decided to start a company together. Initially, we weren't making games exactly. We were sort of uh, making more interactive stories and targeting book publishers, in fact, were, who were kind of interested in new technology and where where ebooks were heading in, what direction ebooks were heading in, kind of whether whether there was something that they were maybe missing uh, as a result of moving over to digital platforms. Um, but it turns out that uh, readers are actually quite conservative and that, I mean, if you think about what you would enjoy reading, um, you don't really want when you when you pick up a book, you don't really in general want to add extra features to, to books and writers certainly don't want to add, write, add extra features to their, their writing either. So we actually came full circle after we got started when we were initially pitching projects to publishers. We, we came full circle and started making projects for gamers again, which, which has been an interesting journey. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, you know, as a kid, I, you know, grew up sort of reading Make Your Own Adventure Stories. And I think you're right. I mean, you know, I've been a gamer pretty much all my life. I mean, the first 
computer I had was a ZX81. Yeah. So that's that kind of gives you an indication of, of you know, how old I am. Sure. So I'm definitely a child of the 80s, and, and sort of Make Your Own Adventure books were, were sort of quite big in the 80s for people like me, you know, who wanted mm. that interactive narrative where you could... I mean, I used to sit hunched over my dining room table with the book and, you know, the dice, because obviously the battle system in, in the books, you know, revolved around yeah. throwing dice and then writing down the scores and deciding when you whether you won or lost. And I think I was probably in the minority because I think a lot of people who read those books never even bothered with the battle system. Mm. You know, I think they sort of just went, yeah, I won that that sort of battle. One of the one of the geniuses of Steve Jackson's books actually is the way he integrates uh, a dice system at the bottom of the pages. So when you flick through the pages of the book and you stop on a random page, you can see at the bottom there's uh, an illustration of two dice. So you just open the book at a random page and it gives you the result of a dice roll, which is kind of ingenious. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's what I like about stuff like that. It, it is cool. I mean, just to, just to sort of talk about Steve Jackson, how how did that sort of meeting come out? And how did you decide that that was what you you were going to use for your source material? I mean, was was Sorcery your first game, or was that sort so, of um, further along? As I as I mentioned, we were, we were initially working with book publishers, and so the first project that we did was um, an adaptation of Frankenstein, which was actually. I mean, it was essentially that that's that same choose your own adventure structure in that um, you made choices and it's it produced uh, a new chunk of text based on what you what you chose. Um, and it was quite pure, actually, in the sense that it was it was more like choose your own adventure than um, a game book in that there weren't any particular game mechanics. But that allowed it to be quite um a literary product, actually. Um, the writer wanted to write something that was quite serious, rather than rather than gamey. So that it was it was it was an experience that was more about playing around with the character of the scientist Frankenstein, rather than you know going on a, a fun epic quest across a fantasy land. Um, so that was our that was our first project, and yeah, it, it was. We were definitely pr- proud of it, but it it wasn't commercially that successful. But it was enough that it impressed Steve Jackson. He could see potential for using a similar system to adapt uh, the sorcery series. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because on the iOS there are other developers that have have sort of you know made, remade the sort of make your own adventure books from the eighties. But Dave, I think what's different. With your games, you know what I've found that's different is they've sort of more or less stuck to yeah. the very traditional how it was back then, yeah. but just with illustrations and you know, and still got the, the but at least the dice roll battle systems are automatic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah no, uh, it was it was so, we decided quite early on that we we didn't want to have dice in sorcery because simulated dice are kind of like it. When when the when the computer decides on a dice roll, it just feels unfair and it doesn't go your way. Whereas a real dice, it somehow feels like if it if it if it if you roll a one instead of a six, you can't really blame the dice. Whereas when it's a game, somehow it's the game's fault, <laughs> which is curious. So how how did the actual meeting come about with Steve Jackson then? So um, it was kind of a, a friend of a friend who who put us in touch with him. Um, we we knew someone at Lionhead, and 
Um, Steve Jackson is actually one of the co-founders of Lionhead. Uh, not many people know that. Most people think it's just Peter Molyneux, but yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it was just a friend of a friend. And, um, and so we met, met him in a pub and he was really easygoing and he liked what we were doing. So did he, did he buy the drinks? He did. Yes. <laughs> did he? Oh, that was a bonus, wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. It, it seems to be his favorite meeting place to meet people in a pub and buy them beer. So that worked out well. <laughs> well, that, that's how Shakespeare did it, I believe. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Always in the pub, apparently. That's what I've heard. <laughs> Actually, I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I mean, I mean, what was he like as a person then? You know, when you got sort of chatting to him, you know, how how did you sort of negotiate the deal? Um, so on, our initial meeting was just when we were kind of halfway through building Frankenstein and we had something to show him. But he was very he was kind of he was quite a businessman about it in that he he didn't say yes and he didn't say no. He just said, come back when you're successful. <laughs> and um, wow. so Frankenstein was, it was, I, and he didn't mean success in the sense of sell a million copies so that I can share your money. It was more like a, he, he just wanted to see that we could really um, follow through in creating uh, like a really polished product uh, that's, that he could see had potential and so when we first met him yeah he was he was definitely interested but he was he was he definitely had a poker face to a certain extent but then the second time he he was I mean he's he's always a, a really nice guy but the second time he was he was much more forthcoming he 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 was really interested in working with us because we we proved that um yeah, our, our our story flow of making choices and and the way that the paper weaves itself together as you make your choices, it was kind of a more seamless experience than purely replicating the the turn to certain pages and and having full pages of text. Because one of the other design philosophies we had was to split up the text and not replicate it perfectly, but split it up so there are even more choices so that the player is interacting much more frequently. And I think I think that really helped as well. So, I mean, when you when you were writing sorcery for the iOS, did did you did you sort of copy it word for word from the book or did you have some artistic license as to how you were going to write it? Um, initially, we were we were definitely trying to follow as close as possible to the source material. Although John, John, who does the writing and the adaptation, um, was definitely always keen on. Uh, adapting it rather than replicating it, which was a really good decision because, um, I mean, every word that is in the, the original Sorcery series is in the game somewhere. Uh, in Sorcery 1, we, we, we doubled the amount of content and Sorcery 2, uh, you know, quadrupled or, or more. So, um, there are, there are like 400,000 words in Sorcery 2, which, in terms of the size of a paperback novel, that that would be a few inches thick. So we definitely added a lot more content that, than was originally there. And what what sort of input did Steve Jackson have on the, the? I mean, has he been involved with all three games that you've now created, or was he only involved in the first one? How did that work? Um, thankfully, he's, he he gave us a really 
uh, he, he gave us a lot of creative freedom. Um, so, and that, and actually it wouldn't have been possible to do what we've done without that. Um, the fact that he's been quite hands off and allow us to add all sorts of game mechanics has really helped us do exactly what we wanted to do. Um, but at the same time, we, I think he's happy with, uh, the fact that we've been inspired by his his work and taking it further rather than um, just purely replicating the experience of reading the the paperback book. So how how did you decide on sorcery then? I mean, did John come to you and go, look, I read these books as a kid, you know, they're, they're really good, let's do this? Or how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so um, it's funny that I... I'd never heard of Steve Jackson before me. What? John, John. Blasphemy. How I know, it's, you? It's, it's shocking, it's awful. Um, but, uh, but actually that's given us a kind of a unique perspective um, in that I really always try to push to make the games accessible to people who weren't fans. Um, but at the same time, between us, we definitely make sure we satisfy both the, the hardcore fans and, and newcomers to the series. Um, and now I've forgotten what your question was. <laughs> the, the original question was, how did you decide on sorcery? You know, was that John's decision or your decision? You know, how did that come about? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, John was definitely a fan of, uh, Steve Jackson. And, um, I think he was kind of tentatively suggesting that we do, uh, we, we approach Steve Jackson with the project, um, and it was kind of tentative because previously we'd been thinking of creating quite kind of highbrow literary experiences like we just made Frankenstein and it is quite literary and um and yeah a little bit too highbrow perhaps um for kind of uh gamers certainly for me actually <laughs> i think i think i was going to say one of the other sort of game gamified stories i guess that that i really enjoyed and thought was really well done was the 39 steps have you have you checked that out i haven't i haven't actually played that one i've seen i've seen screenshots of it and i yeah read about it but yeah and i haven't actually played it myself and and to be fair that that literally is reading a book with just some sort of mild interaction so it's not whereas yours is more of a game with a story yeah you know theirs is more of just an interactive story where you can just do some actions in the story to move the narrative along well it's interesting that you say um a a game with a story like that's that's the core difference i think between uh frankenstein and sorceries that we went from making um kind of a book with some with bits of game in it to making a game with bits of book in it um and that's i think that's what's made the formula really start to gel for us is to think of the the spine of what we make as a game but with it's almost like a board game you know when you 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 pick up a card and it gives you a little description of event that's 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 happened like in monopoly or something it tells you a little story about what's happened um and we think that's a really strong structure to go with because the game the game mechanics give you this real strong spine structure for the narrative and then you can skin it with this uh really well-formed narrative that tells you a kind of in unique story each time you play yeah i think what's i mean what's interesting for me as a kid you know one of the the staples for me of a make your own adventure story was that you you sort of kept your finger in the page when you 
you know, move to the next section because just in case it went a bit pear-shaped, you know, and you either got killed or, you know, and quite often mm. you'd fall in a pit of spikes or whatever it was, you know, something horrible would happen. What made you decide to have the rewind function rather than just sort of you've made, a de- you know, the decision, you're going to have to live with it now? Yeah, it's something we decided pretty really early on actually that um that we realized that people play that way that people like putting their fingers in the pages and from the very first time we met steve jackson he was he's completely aware that players always played that way and he would even go as far as to say it's the way it's meant to be played and the structure of a game book is really more like a maze in that you kind of go down a particular path and you reach a dead end and then you backtrack a bit and you go down a different path and that's not cheating that's just the way you play a game book um and so we really wanted to replicate that experience when you play sorcery, um, which is why we put in this really explicit trail of rewind markers. So you see a sort of a dotted line as you make your your way across the fantasy land. And at any point, you can just rewind to any point on that dotted line and and take it in a different direction. And and that's. And that's actually worked really well. And it's actually more fun when you rewind fairly frequently so that you can see what would happen if you went a different way. Yeah, I think well, the, there is a trade-off as well, and I think that that's necessary, whereas you lose any sort of items or things you've picked up along the way, you'll lose when you do rewind. Yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. You know, so you might have picked up something cool that'll help you with a spell, um, and talking of spells, let's let's talk a little bit about the magic system and and how you decided to implement that into yeah. the game. Yeah, so that's 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 one of the two core um, kind of mini games. Well, they're not really mini games; they're, they're they're core game mechanics that you really aren't game booky in that we took what was in the book and then really fleshed it out into something that wasn't pure text. So, um, yeah, the spellcasting system um, in the original books, you you, you could choose between um, various three letter spells. And so we created this mechanic, um, which was really visual, where you, where you click cast a spell and you see the camera zooming up into the stars. And there's this this cloud of letters from which you can type in the name of a spell. Uh, yeah, it's 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 nice. We've we've added a lot more instances where you can cast spells as well especially with the later games um yeah i mean i mean what was interesting i have got a minor criticism of the spell system i have to say so i'm going to be totally honest with you Um, (laughs) because there's 48 spells is that right uh yeah i think so (laughs) there's a lot designer so uh he could probably correct me if i'm wrong and we are we have added spells in fact from the original series but yeah, it's fair to say there's a lot, but unless you can tell me otherwise, there's no quick way to navigate that book. No, so it's this has been a trade-off between um, what what the original books were like and what we've done with them. That uh, in the original books, everything was super hardcore. You were supposed to actually read the spell book first, try to memorize all the spells, and then only. And and not, and you, you weren't even supposed to look up the spells as you came across them in the books, and of course no one did that. But we we kind of wanted to replicate that feeling to a certain extent, uh, so that you could 
you could get the feeling of learning which spell was which so that when you saw an arrangement of letters in the stars, then you would sort of instinctively say, oh, I, I want to unlock a door and I do see a D there. So let's do D-O-P to open uh, open this door. And, and it's kind of a nice feeling as you go through the series and you do learn some of the spells off by heart. It makes you feel like this. <laughs> it makes you feel like a powerful sorcerer in uh, or, or at least one who casts spells by typing in three-letter words. <laughs> I'll be I'll be honest with you. I'm more like I'm sure there's a spell that does that. Just me. Let me look at the book. <laughs> I'm yeah. flicking pages for the next five minutes trying to find the one that I want. I'm sure this does that. <laughs> we did we did release an update uh, soon after Sorcery One, where after you type in a spell, it will tell you what it does. Uh, so you don't have to. I mean, you don't have. You used to have to kind of try out a spell and then. And then go then back out and go back into the spell book and flick through it. But we've made it a little bit easier. Okay. I mean, there, were, there is a point at the the end of Sorcery 2 where you go up the pyramid. Yes. And you, you create kind of your own spell, don't you, at the top of there? So, so that was kind of... That's... So, yeah, I mean, I've played I've played the first two Sorceries and, uh, you know, Emily's very kindly given me a review copy of, of the third one. I'm about halfway through Ooh. there. Um, so what, what sort of... what? How did you? I mean, the rewind function is the biggest change that I can see in the third game compared to the other two. Yeah, so that, that's the kind of the biggest systematic change, I suppose. But from an overall game design point of view, um, some of the biggest new features are um, it, it's it's almost quite subtle, but you realise the further the further through the game you play that actually it's quite it's quite an open world by comparison with the previous games. Um, before you were very much kind of railroaded into going in a particular direction, you really have to sort of go with the flow, especially in Sorcery 1, but even Sorcery 2, despite the fact you can explore um, anywhere within this this, this big um, city. In Sorcery 3, the, we've changed the structure of the way you can navigate the world so you can backtrack whenever you like. And... And that's a core mechanic in that you need to revisit different areas to to discover certain secrets or to complete the game because one of the other core mechanics is that, uh, I mean, the game is called um, Sorcery 3, The Seven Serpents. And there, so there are these three bosses, the, the serpents, who you need to seek out and destroy. And they're hidden or... They're usually hidden throughout the world, and so you need to find them and kill them. And you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to do that without um, this open world system. So, are, are they always in the same places, and all does that so, change? So, yeah, this is this is this is the slightly confusing thing: is that they are there. Some of them are hidden. Um, some of them move move around. Some of them follow you, and some of them are trying to track you down and kill you. So each of them has a sort of a little bit of a, a different story and a, a slightly different game mechanic behind them. Mm, that's quite interesting. I mean, I'm like I say, I'm a sort of a, a good way into it, but uh, and I am enjoying it. You know, I'm really enjoying it. And and just to let you know, and I've, I've obviously not said this up to this point, but 80 Days was one of my favourite games last year. Awesome. You know, yourselves and Simogo are uh, two of my favourite developers on the iOS at the moment. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we met the Simogo guys at uh, GDC uh, in 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 March, and uh, yeah, they're really nice guys. So 
Yeah, and I do have to say, and I'm going to be totally honest, uh, Device 6 just edges it, though, I've got to say. <laughs> it, I, love, I just love that game so much. It's just, yeah, uh, it just brilliant, it's, you know, the way that they structured yeah. it. Um, I mean, talking of 80 Days, then, how did that differ? Because, obviously, Sorcery is based on someone else's work. How did it feel to be, you know, writing your own IP? Yeah, um, it's yeah. It was definitely it was a combination of liberating and extremely stressful. <laughs> when you're starting with something that's much more purely your own, I mean, it's obviously adapted from Jules Verne around the world in eighty yeah. days. But we've gone so far um, off piste, and there was there was kind of um, obviously Jules Verne wasn't writing Choose Your Own Adventure, so it was extremely exciting actually to to yeah really come up with our own concept it was really really tough actually it was really tough there was a design problem throughout there was there was there was always uh, so many design problems throughout development that often we'd use the the metaphor of biting off more than you could chew and it kind of really felt like that it really felt like you had all these problems you had to solve and you could you just you're just every week trying to chew through all of these difficult decisions and design problems just so that you could get through to the next week so despite it looking like quite an a simple game from some points of view it's it was actually it was it was pretty tough to make actually yeah i can imagine it was i mean because ultimately i mean how many cities were there in the game eventually at the end there's over 140 so and each one of those has unique content so and and all of the connections between those cities has unique content as well written by uh Meg Giants, who did a fantastic job. Right. So, I mean, how long did it take? I mean, compared to Sorcery, for instance, did it take longer to develop or was it about the same? How did that go um, about? 80 Days is definitely the longest project that we've done, which, and it was, each of us spent around eight or nine months on it. We often worked in different times. For example, Meg got started with the story fairly early and then we didn't start the coding until a little bit later. But yeah, for an eight or nine month project, yeah, we're we're quite proud of what we did in in under a year. I mean, one of the things for me playing through your games and obviously playing Eighty Days and playing you know more recently Sorcery mm-hmm. is the 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 ambient sounds that that make a huge difference to the atmosphere of the game and and who does that for you and how do you decide on how that's going to be structured? The, the the thing about sound effects is that it takes a very short amount of time, relatively speaking, to create something that changes the game dramatically i always used to say when i was working at sony that the the sound designers were really annoying because you just took one guy to completely massively improve the game by comparison with you know a hundred people working on art and and programming but yeah so like on 80 days it only took kind of a week or two in fact to write all of the sounds and collect collect all of them from kind of free sound effect libraries online and composite them together to create these soundscapes. But it's a really, it's a really fun process because of the, how, how quickly it elevates the feeling of the game uh, when you're playing it. So it's, it's really satisfying. Yeah, and I think I think people forget how important that type of sound is in games, you know, because especially these sorts of games, because you, you know, when you're in a in a sort of city, for instance, you, you're hearing that hustle and bustle of people going about their daily lives, and I think you know, from a narrative point of view, it does make a huge difference. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Uh, how was it at the BAFTAs then? How did how was that then? Uh, 
so 80 Days was nominated for four BAFTAs, which we, we were hugely proud of, but we didn't win a single one, which uh, we shouldn't be too ashamed of. And everyone says, you know, it's 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 an achievement in itself to be nominated. So we were really, really happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you, you know, you don't need to be coy here because you know nobody's going to hear this. So, like, you know, we, we like, damn you, Monument Valley. Is that is that what you were like? Oh, uh, we so we'd we'd sort of been like that for the past year or two. That Monument Valley was kind of our our, our nemesis. That they they'd be the ones who are always be picking up all of the awards but unfortunately for us when we met the monument valley guys at gdc and also at the baftas it turns out they're really nice guys as well so we can't stay too angry at them oh so you can't hate them too much then uh, did you do the obligatory like slapping on the back at the at the baftas and like, oh, well done guys and all, yeah, that, sort of all stuff? Of that kind of stuff while 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 drinking a lot of wine <laughs> so who who did you get to meet there then so um, I'm, I mainly talk to Dan Gray, who I think is one of the designers on the Monument Valley team. What do you mean in general? In, well, in general or, um, or in Monument Valley. Yeah, I mean, like one of the nice experiences of actually going to the BAFTAs and to GDC, because I'd never been to GDC in San Francisco before, is that you do end up meeting kind of all of these people that you, you've heard of and often people who have kind of tens of thousands of followers on Twitter and stuff, they're sort of like these, the the celebrities of the uh, the gaming world or, or at least the indie gaming world. So um, at GDC, I ended up meeting all three of the, the core developers of the original Monkey Island, which was a pretty big fanboy moment for me. <laughs> so, wow, that is cool. So like Tim Schafer, because he was uh, running the, the awards ceremony for the Game Developers' Choice Awards, and also Dave Grossman and Ron Gilbert as well. So that, that was a pretty, pretty fun experience. But then like also, you know, Justin, who made Desert Golfing, and um, a load of other developers, too numerous to to even remember right now. <laughs> so, so did you get to meet Rufus Hound at, at the BAFTAs? Then? Uh, I didn't meet him directly. No, actually, no. Did you go, hey Rufus, over here? Hello, hello. I did, I did, I did have that moment a few years ago when I went to the BAFTAs uh, Viva Pinata DS that uh, I had this this drunken moment where I, I I went and shook Jonathan Ross's hand and Dara O'Brien as well. And I think they get that a lot. Dara O'Brien was a lot nicer about it than Jonathan, Jonathan Ross. Jonathan Ross just looked at me like, who are you? What are you doing here? Yeah, it's kind of funny that because we we've also met Jonathan Ross. Oh yeah, yeah. When we went to EGX last year, he he came with his kids. Oh cool. So so he turned up to EGX and we we always do a movie, you know, a bit of a sort of cool. a, a very crappy documentary of our time at EGX <laughs> as as it goes. Actually, I shouldn't say that because. Uh, uh, Chini, who who is one of our co-hosts of the podcast, is is he owns his own filmmaking company. So I guess crappy's probably not the best thing to say. You know, <laughs> probably he'll only get angry at me. But anyway, whilst whilst I was off somewhere playing some games or doing something, he bumped into Jonathan Ross and shook his hand, and he yeah. was it was kind of like he looked like he couldn't get away fast enough. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's yeah, that definitely rings a bell. <laughs> but Dara O'Brien was really nice, really gracious. I mean, for me at the time. It was just surprising to see anyone famous who knew anything about video games. And it turned out like Dara O'Brien is genuinely like 
a gamer, and he oh, he's a huge yes. gamer. Yeah, he's common knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a massive gamer, isn't he? And so is Jonathan Ross. Incidentally, he's a big gamer. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, Doro Brim was really good-hearted about like meeting developers as well. He was like, yeah, he's a really nice guy. Oh, there you go. So, so Daro Breen is nice. Yeah. Thumbs Jonathan up. Ross, not so much. Thumbs down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thumbs down. Thumbs down for Jonathan Ross. <laughs> so, I mean, what what's actually next for Inkle? Then, what what can we expect in the future? So, it's a, it's kind of a great time for us. Um, after the release of Sorcery Three, we get a bit of. We it'll be the first time, um, basically, in our company's short three year history that we'll um will have had a moment to pause and not have an immediate deadline looming over us um in the past we've always had to move on really really quickly because we've we've had to often do contract work for publishers and stuff um so we've always had a deadline after every single project and for once i think we're going to have a moment to pause and work out exactly what we're going to do next and and hopefully develop some completely new ideas which is really exciting for us well i was gonna i was gonna say are you gonna stick to the you know gamified books or are you gonna go in a different direction so we've definitely got to complete uh the sorcery series i should say so we will be moving on to sorcery full and we're we're getting some some help from some some good writers to help us get through the content for that. But beyond that, we're probably moving in more of a visual novel direction. So we're, we're thinking of having a lot more, uh, a slight, slightly less prose in the text and a little bit more dialogue and a slightly higher production value and kind of visual effects and stuff, that, that kind of thing. So are you going to be doing something that has a completely original IP that's not adapted from anything next? Well... You'll just have to wait and see. Oh, <laughs> it was worth a try. It was worth a try. <laughs> uh, just to say as well, I never mentioned, you did get the Times Magazine uh, Game yeah, of the Year for 80 days, didn't you? Oh, so That was fantastic. Yeah, so we should mention you did get an award, even if you didn't get one at the BAFTAs. Yeah, and well, we did get, um, we got an IGF award as well, Independent Game Festival Award for Storytelling. Oh yeah, so that's kind of cool. Have you, have you got those on your mantelpiece? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got them outside, uh, I've got, I've got them on my, um, on my windowsill, facing outside, so, you know, any <laughs> people know. past will be like, wow, he's a <laughs> game festival winner, that's incredible. <laughs> I have got some community questions, not very many, I have to say, but I'll go through the ones that have come in. You know, people, it, it's hard to get people involved, but I try my best. I try my best. Uh, so Antonio Phillips wants to know, why did you choose to publish your games over iOS instead of other platforms? So the truth really is that I've been an Apple fanboy all my life. Oh, no. <laughs> that's that's the real truth. The, uh, the business truth is that iOS is a, a huge market and it's and it's actually it's a market where you can be sure to find kind of casual gamers like we definitely we've moved over and we we're for the first time we're publishing a sorcery a part of sorcery on ios and android simultaneously as for other platforms we're definitely thinking of moving over and uh kind of making games for other platforms as well so watch this space so, so can you give us any indica- indication of what other platforms you'll be coming to? Um, so, initially, PC and Mac, we're definitely thinking of that. And I'd love to make a kind of a story-based game for consoles, but 
we don't have any immediate plans for that at the moment. Okay. I mean, I mean, we always joke on the podcast that you know transferring a game or you know because we've got a lot of re-releases on the on the current generation of consoles mm. so so we always joke that it's it's as easy as sort of you know control c control v is is that the case not quite although <laughs> thankfully unity is making that more of a reality so we're moving over to using unity so so that we can actually hit more more platforms but certainly when you write native ios code as we've been doing it's it's not a case of control c control v are you sure <laughs> oh no don't forget <laughs> don't forget control s at the end that's important <laughs> yeah that must have been what we were missing <laughs> that's what you've got to do. otherwise it's all lost right <laughs> you've got to definitely do that yeah. anyway he has got another question for you. his other question was what's what's your inspiration for your games well i guess we've both we've We've both always been interested in bringing more story into games. And, you know, s- story exists in games, and it always has. But um, I always like to quote David Cage. Um, the, oh, God. oh, God, don't do that. Duke hates no, so, one of the other guys on our well, podcast. Well, the funny oh, thing is, is, I used to have a huge amount of respect for him, but less so in recent years. Um, but one thing he did say was... Uh, that story in games is a bit like uh, a porno in that it's it's action with a little bit of story in between. Um, so, uh, and that's kind of true. So, one thing that we John and I definitely believe is that it should be possible to create a much um, a much more integrated experience of interactive narrative, so that when you're interacting with the narrative, you're really kind of affecting the story. And I think there's, there's, there's space in the market as even in the mass market for that to become quite popular, actually, if someone can solve it as a design problem, because it is really tough to make story based games, because one of the reasons that um, shooting games or any type of game works is that it has systematic mechanics. But as soon as you have a story, um, it becomes a lot more nebulous and difficult to reason about the game design. But if someone can can crack that nut, then I think there's a huge gap in the market for it. So, so just let me clarify for the listeners: what you're saying is, is that 80 days is a porno? Is that right? <laughs> Essentially, sure. Well, there are certain parts in the game, if you find them. (laughs) Um, I have got a couple more questions off the listeners. Uh, Michael Swales wants to know, is uh, what's what's played the bigger role in getting to where you are today? Was it schooling, passion, love, need for money? You know, what what made you go into the games industry, I guess, is what he's asking. Uh, I mean, I was definitely a a massive um, gamer growing up. Although, in fact, ever since I was a child, I think I was probably more interested in making games than I was in playing them. So I, I always enjoyed games, but I just love I love the experience of creating a world in which um, you can explore and creating worlds other people can explore. And um, and certainly, I've always, as I said, I've always enjoyed story based games. So. Uh, especially recently I've, we've been finding more and more the the opportunity to uh, invent new genres and try out new ideas and i think to a certain extent some areas of the the game industry have kind of stagnated and the genres have especially in triple a have stopped evolving and and there's this new flourishing 
um, mid-tier independent game developer space where, uh, you know, companies like um, that game company who made... That's a really annoying name to say, actually. <laughs> I, lo- I love... I, I mean, Journey, again, is one of my favourite games. Yeah, no, I absolutely love Journey. And so it's kind of... It's, it's companies of that size, I think, who are really revolutionising the, the game industry right now, which is really exciting. And I think it's kind of cool that, that you know, huge companies like Sony do support these yeah, yeah, more independent developers. So. Yeah, definitely. And, and all, yeah, certainly... Sony's leading the way in that respect, but yeah, Microsoft's doing a, a pretty good job as well. So yeah, it's it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's good to see, and I, I'm absolutely with you. I mean, I'm much. I mean, one of my my favorite game of last year was was Bayonetta two, incidentally. So that's kind of, <laughs> kind of not an independent game, but I, I also it was it was followed a, a close second by The Vanishing of Ethan Carter. Right, right, yeah. No, I haven't played Vanishing of Ethan Carter, but yeah, like. I, I agree. Like there are certain AAA uh, games. Like I, my one of my favorite games is GTA Five. I can't help it. It's it's just a really fun game. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no dispute in that. I love GTA Five. Uh, so you, and outside you know. of like just a, a very few AAA games, most of the games I play are indie titles. So um, yeah, like Journey was definitely one of my favorite games in the last year or two, and um, and I have played a lot of really really strong ios games and and games like ftl just really fantastic so yeah no it is great i mean one of my most anticipated games this year is um everybody's gone to the rapture oh yeah that looks that looks gorgeous so i'm really looking forward to that and and I think because of its setting you know being in the mid 80s i grew up in the mid 80s and it was you know looking at some of the video videos of gameplay you know it's very reminiscent of, a, of the little village where i grew up yeah. and i think that's yeah. kind of the appeal for yeah, me. yeah i think a lot of people in the uk are feeling that i wonder i'm kind of wondering what um uh, gamers in the u.s are going to think of it and whether they're going to think that it's quaintly british or i i hope they like it too perhaps for different reasons though yeah i mean look all the americans they love the uk yes. don't they? they like our quirky accents I mean, and all that a sort real of stuff. advantage for us on 80 days actually that you know, while we've been going for, uh, yeah, this this very European feel, I mean, Jules Verne was French, but he was writing about Phileas Fogg, who's English. And it's easy for us to make because we are British and so we can make it authentic. But then, you know, the Yanks love it too, which is great. You were talking about being a gamer yourself, which is quite cool for me because I, I interview a lot of independent game developers and most of them don't there's a lot of them don't play games well i I have to tell you the truth i don't really play many games anymore Uh, oh no sorry (laughs) yeah no (laughs) you're the same oh my god yeah (laughs) Yeah, at some point in the past five or ten years i just stopped playing games as much and i i find it i find that a lot of games recently uh kind of have the same formula um i don't know yeah, I, I definitely, but I love what's going on in the indie space, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you had one recommendation for the listeners that they might not have heard of, what would it be? Well, if you're listening to this podcast, I suppose you might know um, out there, but if you haven't played it, you should definitely try it. It's it's quite similar to any 80 Days in many ways in that it's a sort of a, an, a, a strategy game with a nar- with narrative attached. You're this kind of lone astronaut trying to find their way um home 
by uh, traveling through the stars and having adventures. And it's out for iOS, and recently I think it's just come out for Steam as well, actually. They've released a new version of it, so... Yeah, I saw that, you know, and I was because I've been playing Elite Dangerous. So, you know, I do sort of play those types of games, but it it didn't get the best of reviews when it was released. So I was a little bit cautious. Oh, no, it's it's a great little game. Yeah, no, it's I I think it's I think it's really good. I do have one. uh, One last question and you can you can treat this however you wish. Okay. but but one of our listeners, John Wilson, says, can I have 80 days for free because I'm too tight to pay any money? Oh, sigh. (laughs) (laughs) We get a few emails like that sometimes. Actually, uh, people say, uh, "I, you know, I, I, I'm only getting my paycheck at the end of the month, and I just don't have enough money." Well, you know, it costs as much as like a coffee, or maybe two coffees. <laughs> so I think I think what he's trying to say, John, is in a nice way, tough shit. Yeah, is, is, would that be fair to say? Shit. Oh, shit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, just just to, to finish off, what what do you do in your downtime, though, if, you, if you're not sort of playing games? What do you get up to? Uh, oh, no, there's a question. Well, so the thing about being an independent developer is you don't get much free time. <laughs> I don't know. I try to get outside. I should try to breathe fresh air at least for one minute a day. <laughs> That's good. That's good. When I'm not uh, working on sorcery, uh, but yeah, no, it can be tough. Well, I'm getting married this year, so uh, oh, congratulations! Been doing some organising, especially of the honeymoon. So, oh no, as long as you don't get like you know, she doesn't start putting her foot down and saying, "Oh, you're not allowed to do that. Come on, <laughs> you need to spend time with me." Well, there's a little bit of that. <laughs> are you still working on that game? What are you doing? <laughs> Have you not? Have you not done Control C, Control V yet? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't take that long. What's happening? Well, that's kind of about it. So I guess you know all I've got left to say is good luck for the future, and I hope you know all your future developments are as as polished and as great as the ones you've released so far. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna keep trying. Yeah. Yeah, and and I hope all goes well. Really. Thank you very um, much. Yeah. So I, I guess we should say a, a goodbye to the listeners. Goodbye. Well, you, oh, there, that's I like that. It's very good. Very good. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll also say goodbye, and obviously, you know, say a big thank you for you to joining us. And I hope everybody enjoys this. And yeah, Cheers. we'll speak soon. Great to chat to you. Thanks. A lot. Yes, thank you.